So what is it like to follow a leader with high integrity even when the outcome is uncertain? Some complain, some remain, some walk away. This is very true in the movie Saving Private Ryan. Raise your hand if you've seen this movie. Excellent. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. In Saving Private Ryan, Captain John Miller takes his men behind enemy lines to find Private James Ryan, whose three brothers have already been killed in combat. And because of a policy of the United States, there is mercy for him and his family, especially his mother, and a very important mission gets established to go and pull Private James Ryan off the front lines to return him home where he belongs. And so Captain John Miller assembles a group of men and takes them on this mission. And they struggle with this mission. It's a difficult mission. The numbers don't necessarily add up. They're confused, they get frustrated, but ultimately, they decide to give themselves for the sake of another, to sacrifice their lives for the sake of someone who needs them to do so. Watch this clip. Hey, so Captain, what about you? I mean, you don't gripe at all? I don't gripe to you, Riven. I'm a captain. He's a chain of command. Gripes go up, not down, always up. You gripe to me. I gripe to my superior officer, so on, so on, so on. I don't gripe to you. I don't gripe in front of you. You should know that as a ranger. I'm sorry, sir, but uh, let's say you weren't a captain, or maybe I was a major. What would you say then? Well, in that case, I say this is an excellent mission, sir, with an extremely valuable objective, sir. Worthy of my best efforts, sir. Moreover, I feel heartfelt sorrow for the mother of Private James Ryan. I'm willing to lay down my life and the lives of my men, especially you, Ryden, to ease her suffering. He's good. I love him. <laughs> Jesus is on an excellent mission to seek and save the lost with an extremely valuable objective, us, to die for us, for the sins of the whole world, worthy of his very best effort to include people even before they believe or behave, with compassion and sympathy and even heartfelt sorrow for all of those separated from God and his kingdom and his purposes for us with a willingness to lay down his life so that others can be set free from suffering and live in love and joy and peace here and now and forever. One-third of the way into this mission, Jesus turns to those following him, and he says something really challenging. 
something really hard, really difficult, not just to hear, but especially to do. If you'll uh, open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 6, in the Blue Bibles, this is on page 892. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says something really challenging. This is what we've been looking at together for the past three weeks. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. And his followers hear this, but they're having a hard time with it. They're having a difficult time receiving and accepting what it is that he's saying. Jesus says, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. What does that mean? It is kind of strange, isn't it? Jesus means that we are to spiritually receive him into the center of our lives, that we are to spiritually welcome him into the whole of our being that we are to consume on him for significance, that we are to feed on him for our spiritual nourishment, that we are to gain our identity and our strength from bringing Jesus into every aspect of our lives. And his followers think, man, son of man, that's, that's a lot to ask. That's a big commitment. And they, they feel the weight. It's hard. And so they start griping. They start griping. Look at verses 60 and 61. On hearing this, Many of Jesus' disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling, griping about this, Jesus says to them, does this offend you? Does it offend you? that I am inviting you to come to me for who I am and to receive from me for what I have come to give you because I know what is best for you. Does that offend you? Because you want me to be who you want me to be or you want from me what you want me to give you? Does this offend you? 
It's a challenging question that Jesus poses to his disciples then. And it's a challenging question that Jesus poses to us today. I get this. I got it when I was a child, and I get it even more now that I have children. I know what's good for my kids to eat, but there's griping and complaining that goes on when I try and give them something that's good for them. But I want what's good for them. I want what's best for them, and so I press through because I love them, because I'm a good father, I think. And if we who are earthly dads and earthly moms want our children to eat good things, how much more does our Savior know and want us to eat good food, to feed on him and find life in him and be nourished and strengthened by him? What Jesus is saying is challenging, but it's not confusing. It's difficult, but it's clear. The problem isn't understanding what Jesus is teaching. The problem is trusting what Jesus is teaching. The problem is surrendering to Jesus as the truth and the way and the life who knows what's best for us and coming under his leadership. That's the problem. And that problem lies within our heart. We want to feed ourselves with the things we want and the the way we want them, getting the results that we want to get. And we feel entitled to that. I, I struggle with this. And so often I find myself to be just like Edmund in The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. I want the Turkish delights of the world. And I'm tempted to turn my back on Jesus and even walk away from him and his promises and what he knows best for me and what he offers to me for something less, for something that's not good, for something that's only fleeting. Have you ever felt like Edmund in your life? Watch this clip. rest of your family. Why? They're nothing special. Oh, I'm sure they're not nearly as delightful as you are. But you see, Edmund, 
I have no children of my own. And you are exactly the sort of boy who I could see one day becoming Prince of Narnia. Maybe even King. Really? Of course, you'd have to bring a family. Oh, do you mean Peter would be king too? No, no, no. But a king needs servants. Hmm. I, I guess I could bring. Beyond these woods, you see those two hills? My house is right between them. What Jesus is teaching is challenging because we have an ego and an enemy. And we nourish our souls with worldly pride and vain image. We feed on earthly possessions and position and power and human recognition. And this is how the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus is a good shepherd and he comes to feed and nourish that we might feast on him and have new, abundant, and eternal life. Jesus challenges the heart of each one of his disciples that day. And he's challenging our hearts as his disciples today. This morning, his words are clear, but they're difficult to accept and to receive. That day, some walked away, some believed, and one committed to betray him. How about us? How do we respond to Jesus? How do we respond to what he's teaching? Because as it was then, it is also true today because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There are three responses to Jesus. And I want to look at each one of them. The first is this. Look at verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. There are disciples who turn their back on Jesus. They turn their back on Jesus and they walk away. Despite the miracles, despite the provision, despite the teaching, despite the relationship, despite the fact that they have already acknowledged Jesus as Messiah and have gone to find him to make him king, they cease to follow him that day. Why? Because Jesus is not who they want him to be. And Jesus is giving them more than they're asking him to give them. And they want Jesus to be who they want 
Jesus to be. They want to recreate him and their image and to demand from him what they think is best for them. This is not the disciples coming to Jesus with a childlike faith. This is the disciples coming to Jesus with childishness. And they turn their back on him and walk away. Following Jesus means acknowledging him for who he is and for what he does and what that means for us from his perspective above all else. What Jesus is saying is that you can't live for yourself and live for God. You can't pursue the lesser gods of your reputation, your position, money or possessions or self-righteousness and pursue God and his kingdom and its righteousness. Jesus is saying, you can't have two masters. You can't have two kings. You can't serve multiple gods. It's one way or the other. There's no in-between. Following Jesus means devoting every fiber of our being, every facet of our lives to him. The call to discipleship is a call of total commitment. And it means accepting Jesus for who he is and for what he does and for how he does it. Or we must continue to be our own personal Savior and Lord and walk away. It's not just a great song from the 80s. It's a reality. That's the integrity of discipleship. Are you offended by that? In what ways is that offensive to you? It's those ways that we find offense with Jesus and his invitation that he knows because he sees our hearts. And that we have the opportunity to acknowledge and bring before him and place at the foot of his cross where he could remove that from us, forgive us for that, remember it no more. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the grave and who lives within us, giving us the desire and the ability to do what pleases him, to now live no longer for ourselves, but for Jesus and his kingdom and its righteousness. That's the way of life. That is the invitation that we receive by feeding on Jesus above all else. To the disciples who turned their back on him, Jesus' response is haunting. To me, this is one of the most haunting verses in Scripture. Because Jesus isn't a politician, He doesn't change His position. He doesn't accommodate the truth. He does not plead with them to stay. He doesn't pursue them as they go. What he's saying is, don't follow me for who you want me to be. Follow me for who I am. And if you can't do that, then I love you enough 
to give you what you really want and the consequences as a result. Jesus doesn't want us to follow him for the wrong reasons. He wants us to follow him for the right reasons. This is the integrity of discipleship. What holds me back? What holds you back from giving all of ourselves to Jesus? That's the invitation. Look at verses 67 through 69. This is the second response to Jesus. Jesus says, you don't want to leave too, do you? He turns to the 12, the disciples. And he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? I hear sorrow behind that. I hear concern behind that. And Simon Peter answers Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God, the Messiah and the Lord. There are disciples who believe, who believe and stay and say, I'm going to feed on you and be nourished by you. I'm going to abide in you and you in me, and I'll have life. This is Peter speaking for all of them. He's their captain. And Peter is calling Jesus Lord. He's calling Jesus Messiah. He's using these two titles in their fullest meaning. He's saying, Jesus, you are the sovereign Lord of the universe, the King of kings, and the one to whom all owe their allegiance. Peter is declaring Jesus to be true. He's declaring Jesus' words to be true, he's saying these are truly the words of eternal life. He's saying the 12 have forsaken all else and fully devoted themselves to following Jesus, to imitating Jesus, and to participating in the fullness of life and purpose that Jesus is offering them. Even when it's hard, even when they're tempted, even when they want to rebel and walk away, they're saying, we're in. It's a significant moment. In his book, Basic Christianity, John Stott describes this in one sentence. He says, every day, true disciples renounce the sovereignty of their own will. And every day, true disciples renew their unconditional surrender to Jesus Christ and his will. Discipleship is a commitment of the whole person to the whole gospel of all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength to all the promises of God in Christ Jesus. And that means surrendering to Jesus, yielding our rights to him, completely coming under his authority, his leadership, and his direction. Because Jesus seeks our allegiance, 
not our approval. The 12 are saying, yes, Jesus, you're the boss of me. You set the example we imitate it. You give the direction we follow it. And when things don't seem like they're going our way, we'll continue to listen and obey, trusting that you have our best interest to heart and know what is best for us. We yield to your gracious leadership in our lives. You know, as I, as I think about the exchange that happened that day between the 12 and Jesus, it reminds me of my wedding vows with Amanda. It reminds me of the wedding vows that we make to one another as husband and wife. Because when we get married, we enter a covenant. And in this covenant, um, there's, it's serious. It's difficult, but it's real and it's serious. And specifically, we promise to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, to honor and keep for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others to be faithful as long as we live. And the vows that we make in our marriage are a mirror, a mirror reflection of the vows that we first and foremost make to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the groom and we are the bride, his church. And the commitment that he invites us into is this deep, it's this serious. And the 12 say, I do. How about you? Do you say, I do, Jesus? Do we as his bride, as his people say, I do, Jesus? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health. There are disciples who turn away. There are disciples who believe. And third and finally, there are disciples who betray Jesus. Look at verses 70 and 71. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. Now, when Jesus looks you in the eye and calls you a devil, something serious is going on, okay? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, though one of the 12 was later to betray him. Jesus calls Judas a chosen man, chosen to be a disciple, but he also calls Judas a devil because Judas is a slanderous, false accuser who is rebelling against Jesus for who he is and for what he's doing and for how he's doing it because Judas wants it another way, namely his way. And so Judas, in order to get his way, betrays Jesus. He is a professed follower and yet a hypocrite. And I understand that. I know people say, I'm not going to follow Jesus because there's so many hypocrites in the church and I am one of them. And yet I will be a part of his church because as a hypocrite, I need Jesus more than anything. 
You know, um, this reminds me of what a college professor said to me one time. He said, uh, Matt, just because you hang out in the garage doesn't make you a car. Just because you hang around Jesus and his people doesn't make you a disciple. Just because you hang out in a sanctuary on Sunday, just because you go to a life group Monday through Saturday, doesn't make you a devoted follower of Jesus. A true disciple responds to Jesus' invitation to come to him, to imitate him, and to participate in his life with all that we are and all that we have, totally surrendering with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and a relationship that's based on integrity. I will become less Jesus. You shall become more. I no longer belong to myself. I belong to you because you bought me with a price and made me new. And I'm going to offer up my life in order to be who you have created and redeemed me to be and walk in holiness and righteousness all my days, not because of what I have done, but because of what you have done for me and because you live your life in me and live your life through me that I might celebrate you with all of my life forever. I've been um, reading uh, the books of a seminary professor. He's at... um, Northwestern Baptist Seminary. His name is Scott McKnight. He's an Anglican. And um, I really like what he writes. And if you haven't read anything by him and you'd like to, he has a book called The King Jesus Gospel, the best book that I've read in the last 12 months. Um, The King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. I see you writing that down and going to order that on Amazon. Well done. Um, but uh, there's, there's, a, there's a quote that, uh, that comes from a different book called The Long Faithfulness. And this really helped me understand uh, what's going on with Jesus and Judas and what's going on with Jesus and me and, and what goes on um, in the life of so many people. Scott McKnight says this, I once spent a summer reading books and stories of apostates. Those who have walked away from Jesus have abandoned the church and gone their own way for their own will. I once spent a summer reading books and stories of apostates, and I found in each one of them a rather common pattern. They all wanted to be independent and free from God so that they could be the captains of their own souls. This confirms what I see in the description of apostates in Hebrews. It is about autonomy. The desire of a human to go at it on his or her own independent of God and the scriptures. It is about usurping the role of God in this life and the next. What about us? What if we didn't turn our back on Jesus, if we didn't betray Jesus, but we devoted ourselves and believed in Jesus? What if we were faithful and fruitful? 
what would it look like to come to him as our everything? To make him number one? To return to him as our first love, forsaking all else, that we might know him and enjoy him and make him known that others could enjoy him with us. His flesh is real food. His blood is real drink. And that's why every Sunday as his followers, we come to this table. We participate in the original altar call every week because we need to remember Jesus and we need to realign to him as the center of our lives, as the leader of our lives, as the forgiver of our sin, as the healer of our souls, as the one who gives us what we truly need because he has our best interest at heart. And so today, will you come to him again? And today, will you hold out your hands and receive the bread and dip that bread in the wine and eat on Jesus, feed on Jesus by faith and with thanksgiving because he is all of yours and you are all of his and there is life to the full and nothing can separate you from God's love for you in Christ Jesus. When we eat his flesh and drink his blood, he says, this is how we remain in him and he and us. And as we feed on him in every aspect of our lives, bringing him into the center of every part of our being, we will live. He will raise us up. He will raise us up. Let's pray. beautifully relevant and powerful, the collect for today, the fourth Sunday in Lent. This is our prayer. Gracious Father, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven to be the true bread which gives life to the world. Evermore give us this bread that he may live in us and we in him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.